Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the stories you're talking about. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, as always, is Duncan Castles. And today, it's all about you, our listeners. It's your questions answered. We've got news on Premier League legends who possibly will be on the move, as well as interesting, uh, I think, questions from uh, some of you guys about five substitutions, Oligar Solskjaer, Mikel Arteta and Lampard, as well as heroes and villains. We're going to start, however... In Milan, where Christian Eriksen is definitely going to be on the market in the January window. This follows his, has to be said, rather disastrous move from Tottenham Hotspur to Internazionale last January. His game time has been very limited and it seems that he and Antonio Conte do not see eye to eye with regards to what his place in the team might be. Hence, the fact that he is not succeeding in Serie A. There has been some rumours about a possible return to Tottenham, but our information is that Jose Mourinho feels like his team has evolved since Ericsson's departure and bringing him back would not necessarily be a positive move. What we can tell you from our sources is that Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, has been in touch with Ericsson's representatives and they are keen to recruit the player in January. The potential transfer fee is unlikely to be more than 25 million euros in the current climate, given that Inter paid around 20 million euros for him. That would obviously represent a profit, but remember the player was six months out of contract when he made the move to Italy. Uh, Duncan, this isn't exactly um, surprising news given Ericsson's time at Inter. Uh, also, he has to think about the fact that he has international commitments with Denmark. Um, I'm sure listeners will have seen him play and score for Denmark in the recent round of international matches. And clearly he wants to protect his place in that team as we move forward into yet more uh, Nations League games as well as Euro 2020-21. Yeah, I, I think this comes down to Antonio Conte. He's a, a manager who is always demanding in the transfer market, always wants more quality players. Inter took advantage of Ericsson's situation in January in that um, they knew he wanted to move on and move on to another league. They knew that Tottenham had tried to retain the player. The player had said no. And therefore, Daniel Levy, being Daniel Levy, wanted to get a transfer fee in January. Um, asked for 20 million euros, got that from Inter. Uh, Inter managed to get a player whose preference would have been to go elsewhere. So Real Madrid, a club he'd wanted to move to for a long time. As it turns out, he made the correct decision in terms of Real Madrid because there was no offer at that time and there would have been no offer um, in the summer as well, presumably, because Madrid signed no one post-COVID. Uh, um, the other side of Antonio Conte is once he decides he doesn't like a player and that player doesn't fit into his extremely regimented system, then he is uh, shows no hesitation about pushing them to the sidelines and trying to get another expensive recruit in. And that's the position Ericsson finds himself in. In some ways, I think he's been unfortunate in that Antonio Conte probably shouldn't be at Inter at present, given that um, he threatened to leave the club in the summer. The club were happy to let him leave, um, but 
refuse to give him the huge payoff that would be required to sack him. And then they both got left in a, in a, in the bed they made for themselves, which the kind of compromise of moving into a second season with some improvements to the squad with the hope that they can go past a, Juventus and finally regain the Italian title. But Ericsson now needs a, another club. Um, as I said, Madrid was his preference before. Um, I think the difficulty for him there is that Zinedine Zidane remains in charge. Um, Zidane's preference to improve the midfield is Paul Pogba, a player he's been pursuing for a long time. We know Pogba wants to go. Um, he's talked about his desire to play with Zidane. He's talked about his dream of, of playing for Real Madrid. And Pogba is uh, very unhappy at Manchester United at the moment. So assuming Zidane remains in place, um, you would have to expect that Eriksen would be ahead of, uh, sorry, that Pogba would be ahead of Eriksen on Zidane's preference list for Madrid, uh, that they wait for the summer to do that deal. However, um, should a change happen with Sudan, then it seems that Florentino's personal preference is not for Pogba. Um, and possibly Ericsson can uh, manufacture something to get that move to Madrid that way. Speaking to contacts at uh, Madrid, Duncan, um, the feeling is uh, they are very much that a successor to someone who's been an extremely valuable player um, for them, and that is Luka Modric, is they're looking for a long-term replacement for Modric, but someone who can hit the ground running, um, even though they've got some very promising young players who can play in the number 10 role or indeed behind as an eight. Uh, Ericsson, uh, I think Spurs fans would agree, having seen Modric play uh, for Tottenham Hotspur as well, would think that that would be a fairly seamless transition into the Real Madrid team. Whereas Pogba, you know, it seems that his time at Manchester United has been so sporadic, not just in playing, but also in positions, that, that the transition would not be as simple as Ericsson's would be into the Modric role. Pogba certainly a more expensive, uh, more chaotic player Ericsson, yeah, I, I see your argument there that he, there are similarities with the way Modric plays and, and the quality of his passing. Um, maybe not as dynamic a player as Luka Modric, doesn't cover as much ground as Luka Modric did at his peak. Um, I think people sort of miss the fact that, that Modric was important in that aspect of the game because he's such a, a, a lightweight player. Um, yeah, the situation with Ericsson, you're, you're interested, it's interesting that you say that Mourinho wouldn't take him back. I mean, that was covered quite in quite detail in the Amazon documentary. And, and I think the section of the Amazon documentary where they, they took some audio from this podcast was actually talking about Ericsson's move to Inter, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, but I think you're right to say that, that the ship has sailed in terms of going back. Levy would not be happy about increasing wages um, when he was forced into that situation and Tottenham are, are completely um, overloaded with attacking um, creative midfielders now and as you say that the style of play has also changed and that the the attack has been um, redesigned you have Sun Jung Min and Harry Kane in this incredibly creative um, productive combination with Kane dropping back uh, deeper uh, and and making more of the goals than he used to, um, still finishing, but but actually operating as something of a creator in the way that Ericsson used to be. So even if they weren't overloaded with mi midfielders, you wonder whether Ericsson would would fit that system. And and when Mourinho came into the club, he tried his best to retain Ericsson. It was him and Toby Alderweireld that he went to uh, and said, "I want to keep you in the team. I want to. I will go to the." the uh, chairman and convince him to give you new contracts if you're prepared to do that. And Ericsson's response was, no, I want to go elsewhere. I want to uh, experience different football, a different kind of football. Um, I'm going, thank you, but I'm out. So I, again, I think the idea that you see him back at Tottenham after the six months uh, is, a, is a very speculative one. 
Well, it took Gareth Bale seven years to come back, so maybe when he's, what, 35? Might see him back at naming rights lane, because he's probably still won't have naming rights by then. We'll come to Paul Pogba and his situation uh, in a few minutes, Duncan, uh, as always. But as we said, this is your questions answered. And we have the intriguing handle of vegan cyclist. Uh, I think those two things go together quite well, actually. Although I'm not sure that the person who is Darren Long 71 actually eats cycles because they're vegan. But, you know, who knows? Uh, and he's simply uh, tweeted as Duncan, Ronaldo, comma, United, and five question marks. This, of course, on the back of lots of noise, both in Italy and France, about Cristiano Ronaldo's situation at Juventus. Uh, we know that Cristiano was unhappy recently that the Italian government intervened or saw fit to intervene and question his decision to return to Turin, having tested positive for coronavirus. Um, we saw a similar situation, albeit more serious, when he was in Madrid with regards to the club not, he felt, supporting him in a tax case. Uh, we know that Cristiano takes these things quite personally. I think there's definitely been a little bit of traction uh, with regards to rumours about him leaving uh, the Italian champions on the basis of uh that plus other things, including, of course, his very substantial salary. Um, but back to Manchester United, that seems to me to be a little bit of a pipe dream for Manchester United fans. It doesn't really suit the cultural reboot. But then again, they did sign 34-year-old Edinson Cavani. Look, I think the story with Cristiano Ronaldo is that in the summer, if it had been a normal summer, there was an opportunity for him to leave Juventus. Um, and that opportunity, that likelihood was was Paris Saint-Germain. But Paris Saint-Germain didn't have the finances to do it. If you, you talk to people around Cristiano at that time and ask, is there, a, is there a possibility that he leaves? And are Paris Saint-Germain still interested? You were not guided against that. But it didn't happen. Uh, PSG actually had a substantial budget difficulties and had to trim their squad down. We've seen your friend Tam Tuchel complaining publicly about uh, the limitations in his resources and being reprimanded by Leonardo over that. And, and Leonardo's an important figure here because we've had this discussion in this week about Cristiano Ronaldo's future off the back of an interview that Leonardo gave to P PSG TV where he was specifically asked about um, the Portugal international and his response was today in football we do not know what will happen maybe tomorrow Cristiano Ronaldo wakes up and says I want to go play elsewhere who can buy him it's a closed circle PSG enters a circle usually it's about opportunities situations the transfer window we have to pre prepare for it and that's what we do uh, we have our priorities our list but something unforeseen can happen so Leonardo obviously um, happy to be connected with Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo, happy to present that name to the supporters as a possibility. Um, I asked whether that is something that's in motion this morning and was told um, that the, the people close to Cristiano did not see a transfer happening. So I, I think we are still some significant distance um, from a scenario in which Cristiano moves out of Juventus and goes to Paris Saint-Germain for the, the next stage of his career. Juventus have financial difficulties. Uh, and if you talk to people at the Italian end, they will not dissuade you from the idea that something could happen were they to be presented with a deal um, that got them money for Cristiano and uh, and allowed them to change things. From a sporting perspective, they don't want to change. They'd like to retain him. But um, if a proposal came that suited the club, I'm told it's something they would look at. Manchester United, well, they didn't take the opportunity when Ronaldo uh, got himself an exit from Madrid. Remember, Ronaldo uh, managed to use that discipline dissatisfaction and the problems within the club and the refusal to give him the contract he wanted at the time 
to get a, an assurance that he would be allowed to leave should the transfer fee that Juventus eventually paid arise in that summer. And and the matter was effectively taken out of Florentino Perez's hands. He wasn't expecting Juventus to come up with the money they did. Ronaldo left, fed up with the way he'd been treated in Madrid. Manchester United could have taken that opportunity at the time. They didn't. You're now further down the line. Um, he certainly doesn't fit the, the cultural reboot story. Um, I think it would be hugely popular with the supporters whether were they to pursue that route. Um, I think if you look at the way Cristiano Ronaldo has talked about Manchester United, uh, it's something he's always been careful not to close the door on. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out from the perspective of Ronaldo wanting to come back. But uh, I, I have heard nothing um, from people close to Ronaldo or at the Manchester United end that that is something they're looking at targeting. And, you know, they spent much of the summer pursuing Jadon Sancho aggressively, uh, putting a lot of effort into doing that, obviously did not conclude the deal. Again, had they wanted to go after Ronaldo this summer with the financial situation Juventus were in, probably a deal could have been constructed with the, the finances that they had in place to do the Jadon Sancho deal. They chose to go down the, the route of an, a young England international player they could have for over a decade. Makes perfect sense from the perspective of the story that Edward Wood and Uli Gunnar Solskjaer have sold about their um, redevelopment plans. Um, but it also tells you that, that they weren't interested in pursuing the opportunity to bring Ronaldo back. Um, on another of the occasions it was available to them. It's a very romantic story, Duncan, with regards to Ronaldo and, and a return to United, obviously. Um, however, I do agree with you regarding um, both finances that would be involved uh, as well as um, the, yes, cultural reboot story and narrative that United are currently um, pinned to. But we do thank Darren Long and hope that he's enjoying his vegan cycling uh, and will continue to do. Thanks for your question, Darren. I'm going to push it on to Paul Pogba now. We've already mentioned him, Duncan. Uh, and a question from Ahim Aslam, uh, who said, will Pogba be sold next season? Now, I suppose this is becoming more relevant on the basis that he is no longer considered on factual evidence, a starting player for Manchester United, something which, as we know, Paul Pogba and his ego, a World Cup winner, etc., etc., does not take well. Um, there is interest, as we know, from Zinedine Zidane at Real Madrid. Juventus seem to be constantly mentioned in dispatches because of his um, alliance and association with that club in the past. But you've got one of the most expensive players in the history of football who's sitting on the bench. And that seems unsustainable, Duncan. Yeah, I, I think it is unsustainable um, in the, the longer term. Um, I think Pogba is very unhappy with the situation. I mean, we have we even have his national team manager talking about that this week, um, Didier Deschamps, um, in a press conference ahead of French national team games, saying he is in a situation with his club where he cannot be happy, neither with his playing time nor with his positioning. He's not in his best period. He's, he's had a series of injuries and the COVID-19, which has hit him quite hard. He needs to find his rhythm and then goes on to say, with me, there is no such concern, um, sort of underlying his importance to um, the, the France national team plans and, the, and their plans to, to try uh, and add the European Championship this coming summer to the World Cup, which Paul Pogba was um, very important in them winning. Um, yeah, he's, I think he's probably become the most expensive super substitute in history um, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, he has played just 59% of the minutes in the Premier League so far, seven appearances, zero assists, zero goals, and 49% of the minutes in the Champions League, three appearances, but he has at least got two assists there, no goals. Um, he is 10th in the Manchester United squad in terms of Premier League minutes played, 373 minutes played so far. 
Um, you know, he's, he's we thought at the start of the season there might be a question over whether Donny van de Beek would take his place in the team because Bruno Fernandes was obviously um, the most important player for Manchester United from the period since he came into the club. Uh, Donny van de Beek likes to play in, in that area which uh, Paul Pogba had been playing with Fernandes at the end of last season. So would he take his position? In fact, he's lost his, his starting place to Scott McTominay and Fred, um, which wouldn't have been predicted going into the season. Um, there is, as there quite often is with Paul Pogba, issues behind the scene. Um, he is not training well. His attitude, I'm told, is very bad. Um, I'm told that uh, you know he is playing up in training, um, there have been um, issues of insubordination with Solskjaer. Um, none of this is, I think, at all surprising. We've seen it before with Pogba. Uh, if you don't give him what he wants as a player, he tends to cause issues for the manager. So I think Solskjaer knew what he would be getting when he decided to, to put Pogba to the side in the way he has. Um, it's complicated because of the, the contractual situation and that Pogba was due to be out of contract at the end of this season. Um, they have extended his deal, taken up the, the option to uh, extend his deal for a further year. Um, I think primarily to try and maintain his value in the transfer market because otherwise in January he would have been free to negotiate a pre-contract deal with clubs overseas. But um, again, that, that's not it's not an easy situation for Solskjaer to handle in that we know Pogba wants to leave, we know he wants to go elsewhere and basically Ed Woodward has decided to hold the player against his will in order to try and get some uh, return on the large amount of capital that's been invested in the player in the, the summer market. Could it be resolved? Yeah, of course it could. Um, he is a supremely talented player. He has the ability, a combination of physical and technical abilities to be one of the top midfielders in the world. He, he hasn't been applying those things, but were there to be injuries in the Manchester United side and were he to get himself into the team and were he to start playing well and, and get involved in a run of results, Solskjaer is very much a manager who sticks with players who present results for him. You saw Nemanja Matic get himself back into... Um, the reckoning as a starter for Manchester United and get a new contract off the back of that last season because he came in and because of injury demonstrated the team was better with him in it and was rewarded with a with a three year deal. So perhaps that happens with Pogba and there is the element of as long as he is under contract at Manchester United he's going to be a very expensive player to sign. Um, with Ed Woodward in the negotiating seat, a guy who doesn't like to sell um, even at market value. Um, so there are a limited number of clubs that can sign them. We're in a COVID environment. Um, will a club come along that says, we want to bet on Paul Pogba and we will pay what Manchester United need to get that deal done either in January or in the summer? I think that's a question mark. Um, therefore, it might be a problem that runs into a, that final season of his deal or he gets back in the team um, a reconciliation happens he plays well for 15 games and I, my prediction would be then he goes back to causing the issues that he has done throughout his time at Manchester United at intermittent periods It's like you say Duncan he's a, an incredibly talented footballer and you know he came at a price which at the time pre-Covid was I think, justified for a player of that stature and that ability. I think United's problem at this moment in time is uh, they've got to decide how to roll the dice, um, whether they do get rid because he's problematic um, around the, the club and off the pitch and he's not performing. Or you have to say, surely you coach when you've got a resource like Paul Pogba, then you've got to get the best out of him rather than simply give up and say, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's too much trouble. 
we have to get rid of him uh, and take the the cut price loss that the club has to to swallow. It just doesn't seem correct, especially when I think we, you know, from our sources um, widely, uh, we know that the COVID uh, financial environment in football is only going to get worse in the January and and then the following summer window uh, because clubs are losing money week by week, day by day. So it seems to me that it's false economy to bench him and simply say, well, you know, you're, you're causing me problems or your attitude isn't very good. Uh, so you're going to have to just stay, stay, you know, and wait your turn to get a game. I I think it's a very difficult scenario for Uli Gunnar Solskjaer and I have sympathy for him here because more accomplished managers than him have struggled to to handle Pogba um, and more accomplished managers than him have tried to make him integral uh, and central to the team. Remember, we came to Manchester United, the team was to be structured around him. It was to be a platform for him to turn himself into the best player in the world, which was his, you know, his stated ambition. Uh, and we saw the problems that were caused. We saw those demands that he be played on the left side of a of a three in the midfield and be relieved of defensive duties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and we see the same pattern with Solskjaer as we saw with Mourinho in that Pogba can be very good for periods and um, and look like he can be that player, but then you have these games where he just refuses or to to do the defensive work or the running and he becomes a liability for the team. Then the manager has to solve that and he has to solve it in a way that gets Pogba to apply himself. And neither of them have been able to get Pogba to apply themselves to doing what shouldn't be such a a difficult demand of, of simply running in games. Pogba is a big personality in the Manchester United dressing room. He's popular with a number of individuals. He's He is a leader in a particular sense. Therefore, when you get into conflict with him, it, it becomes more difficult to handle. It's not like the other players are saying, look, this guy is a complete liability. We'd rather see him out. Um, they, I, a conversation with one player in the dressing room asking about Pogba and they're, they're laughing about his behaviour and saying it's Paul being Paul. It's the same old Paul. You know, almost in a, uh, he's a, he's a lovable rogue type character. A less likable individual would not get away with that from other professionals. They just say, look, he's disrespectful towards us and he isn't contributing on the field. But that turns it into a difficult problem for a manager like Solskjaer, who remember is fighting for his survival here. So again, I can understand when he's got his career. And, and, and I don't think it's unfair to say it is his manager, managerial career at the top level on the, on the line here. Because if he doesn't succeed at Manchester United, it's very hard to see him getting a top Champions League club. Even a, It's hard to see him getting even a mid-tier Premier League club as a, as a future job. So he, he, his career is on the line and he's choosing to put players like Fred and Scott McTominay in the team because they run and they follow instructions and they more often than when he has Pogba in the side produce results and he doesn't get that many results as Manchester United manager. So, you know, ultimately he is going to put his own survival ahead of the the financial plans of Ed Woodward and Manchester United and, and the long-term planning of the club. And I think from a sporting perspective as well, we've seen so much of this from Pogba. We see the way he talks about wanting to leave. Is there actually a way of integrating him into the system and getting the best out of him? You know, realistically, it's headed in one direction, um, which is him leaving the club. And realistically, Manchester United should probably have cut the losses on him two years ago, um, but they, they're now in a scenario where he is a problem for them, both financially and from a sporting perspective, and a problem for their manager. So at Fahim Aslamo 5, we hope that uh, we've given you uh, some insight and information uh, with regards to your question on Paul Pogba. Um, 
certainly seems to be the case. Uh, whether or not he leaves next season, well, I think Duncan has explained that fairly uh, well with regards to what the problems are, both financially and for sporting reasons. One subject which has certainly dominated uh, conversations and debate in football uh, since last weekend's Premier League games is the issue of whether or not five substitutions should be reintroduced into the English Premier League. This based, of course, on the fact that every other major league has decided to retain five substitutions, but the majority of Premier League clubs decided on two occasions on vote that they were not in favour of this. Since then, it seems 10 of the 20 clubs would be in favour. Uh, there were, I think, fairly forthright um, discussions and uh, certainly uh, almost a rant, if you like, by Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp after the two sides drew 1-1 last Sunday. Uh, in the battle of last year's champions and runners-up with regards to protecting player welfare and how making the five substitution rule uh, would help in terms of them being able to protect players from injury. We know that Trent Alexander-Arnold will be out between four and six weeks uh, with a hamstring problem. Klopp made a point of that. Guardiola agreed with him. We've got a question here. Uh, Duncan from Sakiba Hanif, uh, who says five subs in a game, and this is an interesting angle on this one actually. Five subs in a game in the long run, will it be better because it will give youth a chance? I, I think that is a good angle, it's a good way to look at it. I think it's undoubtedly correct that if you had five substitutes in a game um, for this season it would give youth a chance. There would be more opportunities for academy players to play. Um, maybe it wouldn't give them so much chance uh, under the current rules if you kind of you institutionalise five substitutes in a game because I think what you would see if it became a standard rule is the clubs would build their squads bigger in order um, to take advantage of the five substitutes or... And, and this, I think, is central to the argument of the other Premier League teams in order to compete with the bigger clubs. So the, the, the weaker Premier League teams think it's unfair because the uh, the big six in particular have squads built for European football. Uh, they have more senior players available to them. Um, therefore, you let them use five substitutes to give them more tactical options and more quality off the bench. Whereas if, you, if you're down the end of the Premier League where you're not playing European matches, you don't have to create as large a squad uh, because you don't have as, ma- as many demands on the players. So they, they feel that three substitutes is a balance um, which makes it easier for them to compete and they don't have to spend as much in transfer and recruitment to build up a squad with five substitutes. Therefore, I think if you made that five substitute rule long term, those lower clubs would build up more experienced um, benches and possibly you wouldn't give as much, get much um, youth advancement um, off the back of it. I think the only way you could change that would be to say, right, as happened in Scottish football, um, at one point, uh, you're allowed uh, 11 on the bench, but let's say six of them have to be under 21s or have to be five of them have to be academy players. Then, then you probably get youth having a chance because the managers are forced to have youth on the bench to cover, cover some of the positions available to them. Um, I think it's a difficult issue. I think, I think from a player safety point of view, the argument is clear that you should have five substitutes um, because it, the particularly the teams playing European competition, the players are, are in the hardest schedule they've ever been in. They're playing Premier League, Champions League or Europa League, Premier League, repeat, and then they're having these, these um, packed international uh, breaks full of games. So there is no rest for the the top end um, Premier League players, 
uh, and it will has caused injury, it has caused much muscular injuries, and it will cause muscular injuries. So from that perspective, the argument is clear. You should have five substitutes in a game. From the competition perspective, and from the the product, I, I think it's it's not clear at all. I think that argument from the the, the weaker sides that it allowing five substitutes benefits the big six is correct and that's why they've uh, they've voted it down um, and I think from a spectator point of view although you would want fresher bodies on the pitch and you would want less players being injured so there is a danger by doing it this way we miss some of the stars being in games 10 substitutions in one game is not good to watch it feels like a training match. It feels like a, a pre-season friendly. It definitely changes the dynamic of the game. Um, and it definitely benefits the bigger side. So from from a, a competition and sporting perspective, I think the, the Premier League made the right decision on three substitutions. But on a health perspective, I understand the complaints of the players. But... Let's look at Klopp and Guardiola who are being vocal about this and, and we must say Solskjaer was also vocal about uh, scheduling, justifiably so, that he had to play uh, the earliest game on Saturday after travelling away to Turkey. The Klopp and Guardiola are complaining about the number of substitutes they're allowed to use, yet they play each other at the weekend um, in the most important game of the season so far and they only use three substitutes between them. So <laughs> there's, there's a, a little bit of hypocrisy here in, in what they're actually doing compared to what they're asking for. It's like they want to have the five, five substitutes available to them in the moments that suits them when they're winning games and, and, uh, and they're easily winning, and then they can rotate and rest their players for the important games later on. So let me get, go from a different angle again, Duncan. Um, I spoke to the technical director of our Premier League club uh, earlier this week on this particular issue and asked him his point of view. Now, he's, he's not top six. And he said to me, look, if the top six want five subs, okay, but why don't they just rotate this amazing squad that they have rather than demand to have five substitutions in a game after all it's only two more than the three we currently have so why not just start some of the players that they're not starting rather than having a starting 11 that they're supposedly are putting their welfare at risk in order to get results because effectively that's almost the same as having five substitutions albeit you play them from the start so I think there's some you know accuracy in that argument I think I think that's a very good argument from a, a, a player welfare point of view and from a avoiding injury point of view they could indeed rotate their squads um, to minimise the minutes and space out the minutes their players are playing um, what, but I think it actually gives the, the lie to what's happening here what they want is a five substitutes rule to make them as competitive and effective as possible so they want to be able to use it when they suit when it suits them. I.e., if you're Pep Guardiola and you are five nil up against Burnley at half time, you bring your five substitutes on, or you bring four substitutes on at half time. Take out the important players, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, your Americ Laports of the world. Take them out. Give them forty five minutes rest. Um, allow save them for the important matches and use the five substitutes when the game is already dead. It's in those moments they want to apply this rule. So they want to have their cake and eat it with this five substitutes rule. Because as I say, they didn't do it um, in that Manchester City-Liverpool game. And both managers complained about not being, not about not having substitutes around that match. And both managers complained that the, the tempo of the game dropped off um, because of the demands on the players, although I think part of the reason the tempo dropped off in that game was that Klopp was happy to sit on his uh, on his one one, um, and uh, the the you know the beautiful, really exciting opening where we had both teams going at each other uh, ended at, at halftime when when those tactics were changed. 
It's a very interesting debate and one that no doubt we'll be returning to as the big six continue their campaign to get five substitutes allowed in line with other European leagues. Thank you, Saqib Hanif, uh, for your question. And we hope again that you have been enlightened, of course, by the debate. And of course, please carry on the debate with us. As you know, we're always open to speaking to you on our social media channels and we'll discuss them at the end of the podcast. For now, we want to go, first of all, to Just Jake, uh, Mr. Jake Fields, who says, why does Frank Lampard and Mikel Arteta not get the same high levels of scrutiny that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seems to get? Ole is one result from the acts, according to some media, yet his record isn't that different from theirs and better actually. Yeah, look, the increasing amount of uh, social media interaction around this, um, saying that Solskjaer, the, the attention on Solskjaer is unfair and that other clubs don't get the same scrutiny that you know clubs like West Brom, for example, should get the same amount of scrutiny as Solskjaer which, uh, or Sheffield United. It's interesting that some individuals feel that um, poor performance by Sheffield United and poor performance by West Brom is, is the expected level that Manchester United um, should be at. These days, I mean, they, they're obviously different dimensions of clubs. Um, I also see this a lot with Solskjaer, Arteta, and Lampard. Um, you know, Jake there is saying that the record isn't that different, better actually. I, I'm not sure it is better. Um, if you look at the numbers, uh, Arteta, uh, appointed 20th December 2019, has already won one trophy, won the FA Cup, qualifying Arsenal for Europe off the back of that. He has had 28 Premier League games as a manager and 13 uh, wins, so he's on 46.4% win rate. Um, Frank Lampard was appointed in the summer of 2019. He started as a manager in the summer of 2018, so he's only in his third uh, full season as a first-team manager. He hasn't won any trophies yet, so that is the, the same as Solskjaer in terms of Premier League um, performance. In that first season, he qualified Chelsea for the Champions League with, famously, um, no players signed in either transfer window during that period. He's on 46 Premier League games and 52% win rate at present. Solskjaer appointed almost two years ago now at Manchester United, 19th December 2018 is when he he, uh, came into the club as manager for the first time. He started his first team managerial career a decade ago now. Um, He has won no trophies at Manchester United He has been in charge for a total of 66 Premier League games, 33 wins, which is obviously a 50% win rate. So it's higher than Arteta, but lower than Lampard. Since he was made the permanent manager, which is obviously an important statistic because it's an assessment of whether the Glazers and Edward were correct to give him that long-term contract. He has had 53 Premier League games, 23 wins, 43.3% win rate, which is lower than both Arteta and Lampard. He's also, according to Ed Woodward, had the highest net spend on uh, transfer fees of any manager in European football in the last three transfer windows. So he's been given pretty substantial resources and in his own words, um, no player comes into the club or leaves the club without his final say on the matter. So I I think, one, I disagree that that, um, that Solskjaer is doing as well as Lampard and Arteta. But two, I think the assessment is always on managers is what are they doing relative to the context in which they took over the club and the resources that have been provided for them. And Solskjaer's had the best resources he also took over a club that was uh, that finished second in the Premier League on 81 points um, the previous season and hasn't managed to get them beyond 66 points since then. He hasn't delivered any trophies. He's, he's in charge of the longest drought in Manchester United's 
um, history for the last 30 years. They haven't gone three years without a trophy since then. Um, and he's not a new manager. The, you know, the idea that he's inexperienced and he is developing and learning as a manager, he's been doing this job for a decade, whereas Arteta and Lampard will always be cut a degree of slack because they are early in their managerial careers and clearly are still learning. Whether they should get jobs of that dimension with so little experience is a separate argument, but the question is about levels of scrutiny. And I think that explains why there is less scrutiny um, or less criticism of the jobs Arteta and Lampard have, have done in tandem with what they've actually been achieving on, on the field and, and the way in which you can see a, a pattern uh, and degrees of progress uh, in the way their teams are playing. I must admit, Duncan, I'm not sure that um, Arteta and Lampard do get an easy ride. Uh, I've seen lots of discussion and debate both in social media and in mainstream media, uh, both in newspapers and online, about the performances of both those managers with regards to uh, what they've done, what they've spent and any achievements that have come their way as a result. Solskjaer has to take responsibility for the fact that he is the head coach or manager of one of the world's biggest clubs where expectations are very much higher and also, as you rightly point out, the lack of success in recent years seems to be becoming a pattern as well. Uh, and to be honest, I do think, and I said this on the pod uh, last week um, in the Q&A that it's becoming a bit embarrassing for his mates, uh, his old teammates uh, in the media to be completely ignorant of what's happening as a coach and instead blaming uh, lack of signings or transfer windows or the players or it's this player or that player and not taking responsibility for saying, well, do you know what? the first thing that you do when you've got no defenders on the halfway line uh, when the opposing team, when you're taking a corner and the opposing team knock it long as he did to Demba Ba in Istanbul last Wednesday night uh, and he goes on to score. That's your fault. That's your responsibility. And that has become a recurring theme of Solskjaer's uh, tenure at Manchester United but one which it appears the um, hierarchy are willing to uh, be, well, they've just kind of buried their heads in the sand. Um, I think it's a good it's a good point, Ian. It's the the question is about the, the scrutiny. I think that that um, podcasts and, and media like ourselves give Solskjaer. Um, but actually, if we're talking about levels of scrutiny, the, the, the lack of scrutiny that Solskjaer receives from his very influential uh, ex-teammates and friends in the media is, is actually the most remarkable thing here. Because as far as I know, Paul Scholes, for example, and Gary Neville have yet to criticise a single thing that Solskjaer has done in the job. A single thing, not even the slightest question over a substitution or or a tactical decision, which is quite remarkable given that you know forty three point three percent win rate uh, since he has made a permanent appointment and uh, the relative underperformance. Um, if you talk, look at the resources that he's been provided with, and and look at what others have done in that role. So yeah, if you probably the real question about scrutiny here is why is the precious one so precious to certain people in the media? Well, I'll tell you what, I would love to ask Gary Neville the question. And of course, Gary, the invitation is still open to you to come on the Transfer Window podcast. If Solskjaer were available, would you give him the job at Salford City? <laughs> Let's wait and see if Gary wants to reply to that. Uh, Nice segue here, Duncan, into LJR, L at LJR0382, who I mentioned before. Um, and of course, this is an, is an interesting question because 
as everyone who listens to the podcast, who engages with us on social media and reads our timelines will know, Duncan gets a lot of flack with regard to um, his criticism of Olga and Solskjaer. And I think it's only fair in terms of balance that we should say when Solskjaer has deserved praise, Duncan has given that praise as well. But this question is an interesting one. It says, a different type of question for you, Dunk. As a fan of the pod and a Man United fan, how do you deal with the criticism aimed at you for your apparent dislike of the club? It's a bit harsh. Manager and captain. I find your show very informative and I am interested on your view on this. Thumbs up. <laughs> well, thanks for the question. I'm glad, uh, glad you enjoy the podcast and I think most of our listeners do and, and we often get comments about um, finding the information informative and the, and the analysis useful too, which is great because that's why we do this. Um, dislike of the club, I, I like Manchester United as a club. Um, as I've said before, I don't dislike um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer as an individual um, and I don't dislike Harry Maguire as an individual. Um, I don't like Solskjaer as a manager, which is a different assessment altogether. And <laughs> gone into much great detail as to why I don't think he is the, the right man for Manchester United or even any club of a, of a similar stature. And Harry Maguire, well, before Harry Maguire even signed for Manchester United, I predicted the problems he would have as a footballer because of his limitations in pace and his positional issues. Um, I would never have signed him for a club of that dimension. I, I don't like him as a, a centre-back for a, a top-level football team, but um, it, it's not that I dislike him as an individual. How do you deal with criticism? Well, it's pretty hard to be a football journalist um, who says anything of interest anymore without receiving criticism on, on social media. So I think you basically um, just let the majority of it wash over you, um, laugh at quite a lot of it, and then um, have a constructive debate when there's a constructive debate to to be had. But um, it's you know it, it's part of the job. So it, I don't think you'd be able to do the job if you didn't find a way of, of coping with it. And and uh, doing the things I just mentioned seems to be the best way to, to do so. It's interesting, Duncan. Um before the advent of social media and, of course, the democracy that is Twitter and Facebook, etc., etc., um, the only, or not the only, but the criticism that um, we faced as football journalists used to come on Monday mornings when players would call us up about hmm. why we'd only give them a five or, in, or, in, our, in our ratings. Or a three in, in Ian McGarry's. Oh, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. But let's just see. Ashley and I have made our peace on that. <laughs> <laughs> he understands. Uh, yes, you have the entire England team bus singing to you over a mobile phone. Uh, so um, Twitter, etc., has made it much more interesting uh, in terms of the criticism that we get. And I think uh, I have to um, basically say, I, you guys that listen to the podcast are generally extremely fair and lots of you are extremely positive. And the guys um, who criticise us for one thing or another, you should, you know, we take it on the chin and we, we answer you and we have a constructive conversation with you we hope very much that you appreciate that uh, because that's what we do on the Transfer Window podcast. I think, on, I, think I think generally it's, it, it's constructive. That, that, you know, people commenting on your work, they can pick up mistakes you make occasionally. They can uh, point out things you haven't thought about. They can ask you questions you haven't thought about. You come up with ideas from, from these conversations. Um, and I think as a journalist, I think the big difference from having social media to the way we used to work, where everything was filtered through a newspaper or perhaps through radio or television, is we have direct access to the audience and direct feedback from the audience. So if your story, as would happen on occasion, got buried by the editor because he didn't think it was 
um, important in that particular edition or didn't have space to give it prominence in that particular edition, you can put it on social media and you can let it find its own audience. And, it, and that is massively constructive as a journalist. It's a real, on the whole, um, the feedback and the, and the, and the, the operation of social media as a football journalist is massively beneficial. Definitely. I agree with that, Duncan. And as I said, that's why we do engage with our audience. Um, I do think the um, continual recurrence of mentioning that you don't have hair is a bit unfair. That hardly contributes to your um, qualities as a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Although some people seem to disagree. <laughs> Remarkably. Yeah, 10 out, 10 out of 10 for observation. I, I really hadn't noticed that my hair had disappeared until I joined up on social media. <laughs> it, came, it was a shock to me, that first tweet of you're bald. <laughs> now, Duncan, we've got a question about Celtic as well, haven't we, which we want to address? Uh, yes, one for you, Ian. Um, this is from Andrew Mackay, and he is asking, will Celtic replace Neil Lennon? Nine points behind, albeit with two games in hand, Celtic are um, in that 10 in a row season, which you, Ian, and I think uh, Roger Mitchell have already predicted was a guaranteed success, that they would definitely get that 10th title. Um, do they need to change the manager to, uh, to make it happen? I think this is a predictable response to uh, recent performances rather than results. With regards to Celtic, um, poor performances in the Europa League and obviously exiting the Champions League as well uh, at the first hurdle. I did speak to a couple of people um, at Celtic uh, in order to research this to, to be able to answer the question. And the, the information that I received was that the difficulty right now is one of kind of a unique uh quality and that is that uh, Celtic are in this particular um, bubble of going for 10 in a row and to change the manager uh, into the season uh, would be to try and find someone who understood not just the nature of Scottish football but the culture of the whole 9 in a row, 10 in a row type rivalry between Rangers and Celtic and that at the moment Neil Lennon is someone who certainly has a handle on that and knows exactly what it means. I think there are problems in the dressing room with regards to players who want to leave, who I think are fatigued. Uh, I say fatigued with, I mean, uh, with the pressure that's placed upon them week in, week out. Uh, Celtic still have the possibility of doing a, a ridiculous quadruple treble should they win the Scottish Cup final, which has been delayed obviously from last season. And 10 in a row hangs heavy uh, on that shirt, that green and white shirt. So, yeah, I, I don't see it happening in the next few weeks or months uh, because, simply because there is no one probably better placed than Neil Lennon right now to uh, come into the club and be able to motivate the players and do it properly. Uh, I'm not saying that Lennon is completely bulletproof, on this, but I do think that he retains the uh, faith and the uh, trust of uh, the chief executive and the board at this moment, and uh, that he will continue in the job for the foreseeable future, certainly. Obviously, if results get worse or they don't win the two games in hand, which will take them to three points behind Rangers, uh, and obviously there are old firm games still to be played, and as we know from what happened last season, um, Rangers uh, effectively uh, fell apart in the new year after the winter break, uh, allowing Celtic to go on to claim nine titles in a row. And I think there's a expectation or at least um, confidence that Celtic can catch them. Uh, and I say confidence, I mean um, in the club itself that they have better quality of squad and players and that they will come good. I think the one caveat I would insert here is that they may lose valuable and players in the January window uh, because 
this is also a Celtic board who will sell at the right price. And what they didn't get for players like Austin Edouard um, in, and Christopher Iyer in the summer window were suitable bids. But if those bids came in in January, I do think that Lennon might find himself in a more difficult situation because he'd find players that are very central to his team sold from under him. So we shall wait and see. But of two, course, you. Two questions, Ian. Go on. How do you think Steven Gerrard will cope psychologically with a title running? Should he keep Rangers in that position at the end of the season, given that he hasn't won a league title in his long playing career? And uh, famously had that slip that that cost him his his best chance of one with Liverpool. And two, surely the man for the job is Brendan Rodgers, given his great love for Celtic (laughs) and his um, desire to get that 10 in a row. So you've given me two trapdoors to choose from there. Um, (laughs) Go through both. On the the first one, I will tippy-toe around the edges and say that uh, thankfully for uh, Stevie Gerrard, uh, who's someone I know quite well and I've got enormous respect and like for, um, he's not on the pitch, so therefore the only slip he can have is a Freudian one. Um, and say something wrong in a press conference or in a post-match interview. Um, I think Rangers have not won a title in such a long time that their mental fortitude will be very tested in a run-in. Should, and this is very important, should Celtic be able to win those two games in hand and keep the pressure on them up until the next Old Firm game? Uh, and on the second one with Brendan Rodgers, well... This man's at the top of the Premier League. Why would he want to change? His love for Celtic, clearly, as as so frequently expressed. I think his love for Celtic has has, has been well documented and, and may now be put put to rest. <laughs> <laughs> that he's found he's found his career back in England. So. Uh, with that, we're going to move on to heroes and villains because, of course, this is the first podcast of the week. Um, Duncan, I'm going to change um, tradition. I'm going to go first with hero uh, because I want you to explain your villain um, in the uh, best way that uh, you can. I'm going to go, well, I'm going to give um, Marcus Rashford, of course, uh, not just an honorary mention, but an honorable mention. Uh, because he, of course, in the last five days has caused a second U-turn in the British government with regards to providing underprivileged children with uh, meal vouchers uh, in times of hardship, and uh, he should be respected and applauded for that. Um, But I'm also going to go for Raheem Sterling as a hero, because when he had the opportunity, and it clearly was an opportunity, Uh, when he was fouled in last Sunday's game against Liverpool to go down, he stayed on his feet. And when possession was lost, within around a minute and a half, I think it was, Liverpool then won their own penalty uh, when Sadio Mane was brought down by Kyle Walker. But the fact of the matter is, Sterling himself decided, no, I'm not going to, you know, just simply fall over. I've had a lot of criticism about this in the past. I'm going to stay on my feet and see what I can do. And I think that should be recognised, even though VAR decided not to review it and give a foul. And of course, as I said, Liverpool then went and scored a penalty at the other end. So Sterling and Rashford, you are our heroes of the week. Well, I think, um, unfortunately, VAR couldn't step in and review that one. But what we should say is it was a terrible bit of refereeing in the most important game of the Premier League season. Again, uh, deja vu for last season when uh, Manchester City thought they had a penalty at one end of the pitch and Liverpool go up uh, to the other end with uh, applying Schrodinger's handball Law scoring the first goal of the game and going on to win the match. In this case, they didn't go on to win the game, but the referee should have, he was he would have been correct to play advantage, but he should have given the foul and there should have been no goal for uh, Liverpool, no penalty for Liverpool. But 
bad refereeing decision in a key Premier League game. We've never seen that before, have we? Um, but that's not the villain of the week. Um, might have been in a normal week, uh, but this week it has to go again, I think, for the second time in three weeks, if I'm not mistaken, to now ex-FA chairman uh, Greg Clark. You just have to uh, turn on the internet to find out the multiple reasons why he is villain of the week. But just recall, this is uh, just a couple of weeks after it was exposed that he was one of the key figures in Project Big Picture um, and tried to deceive the English football public over his his role in that. So um, I do not think it is a bad thing at all that we have lost Greg Clark as FA chairman. And let's just hope that the, the English Football Association can finally appoint someone who can uh, make a decent fist of the job because they've gone through a lot of chairman and chief executives in the last few years and uh, struggling to think of a very good one. My foot goes to Leroy Rosinha in terms of the new FA chairman. A man has done more than most uh, for promoting diversity and the ability for the BME community to get a fair chance of representing uh, themselves in football in administrative positions. Um, so if you feel the same way, then please uh, just look up the FA's address and you can write to them and let them know what you think. Is, is the uh, rumour that the FA want to appoint Donald Trump uh, a correct rumour? <laughs> uh, you know what? Stan Collymore wrote a column today, Duncan, in which he said that Gary Lineker should be the FA chairman. And then my first my first uh, thought was, well, I don't think he wants to give up £1.6 million at the BBC to become FA chairman for about 150 grand a year. So uh, I'm not sure Gary's replied to that yet. But if you look on his Twitter account, I'm sure you might find out. So that brings us to the end of your questions answered on the first pod of the week on the Transfer Window podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. That'd be very nice of you. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube and turn on all notifications and you will find out as soon as a new pod is available. Please join the discussion with us there or at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ, as you all well know, because we're very, very pleased always to hear from you, especially when you're sending in your questions and you want to expand the debate. That's it for now. We'll be back later this week. Please stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.